Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. I'm Natalia Shpilova-Said. I'm a host of New Books in East European Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm delighted to speak today with Sergei Zhuk about his book, Soviet Americana, The Cultural History of Russian and Ukrainian Americanists, which was published by Taurus in 2018. Sergei Zhuk is professor of Russian and Eastern European History at Ball State University. He received his first PhD in U.S. history from the Institute of World History in Moscow and his second in Russian history from Johns Hopkins University. Zhuk is the author of the acclaimed Rock and Roll in the Rocket City, which was published in 2010, Popular Culture, Identity and Soviet Youth in Dnipropetrovsk, 1959-1984. This book was published in 2008, and Russia's Lost Reformation, 2004, as well as numerous books in Russian. I came across Soviet Americana a few months ago, and I was very intrigued by the title for many reasons. On the one hand, I'm interested in how the relations between the U.S. and the USSR were established, taking into consideration the fact that the two countries prioritized different ideological directions. Also, one of my interests is the American literature canon in the Soviet Union. Additionally, I myself studied American literature in Ukraine, and your book made me think about how American literature was, on the one hand, manipulated by the Soviet authorities, and on the other hand, how literature of the U.S. contributed to the formation of Soviet-American relations and to the formation of memory about the U.S. and the Soviet Union. In your book, you emphasize that you offer, so to speak, a first-hand experience. You grew up in the Soviet Union, and uh, your professional education and training was shaped by the Soviet educational model. Could you tell us about how this project originated? It started as part of my biography. Uh, in the 1990s, after defending my PG dissertation, in Moscow, I went back to Ukraine and resumed teaching uh, Western civilization history in Nibirkovsk uh, National University. And um, I told my man, Nikolai Bolkhavitinov, um, uh, that I, I'm very interested in my new project about cultural influences of, uh, which came from the United States and Canada uh, uh, to Soviet people, how these influences shape our identity and our academic choices. Because I realized that many of my colleagues, including myself, uh, became Americanists, historians of the United States and Canada, specialists in American politics, economy, culture, because of American and Canadian, especially American, U.S. influences which took different forms, not just a literacy, uh, but especially films, video information, and, of course, music, jazz, rock and roll, disco, rap, all these influences um, became very influential, uh, very uh, substantial for uh, my generation, generation 
people who uh, made this uh, field of American studies. And who my uh, mentor, I uh, knew that Polkhavikinov himself was shaped by so-called trophy films, uh, which came with uh, Soviet army from Berlin, from Germany, from occupied Germany in 1945, when more than 1,500 American films were shown in Soviet Union. Understanding, uh, to some extent, uh, millions and millions of Soviet young people everywhere in small villages in Ukraine, in Central Asia, in Russia, watch these films. And what about these films? These films were either bastards, so-called cowboys, or music films, like uh, Serenade, Serenade of uh, Sun Valley, with John Glenn Orchestra playing live. Can you imagine what Soviet kids saw on the screen? Real American life, um, American jazz band playing, uh, catchy tunes, or for example, films about Tarzan, when Tarzan, ape man, uh, visited uh, New York City, and suddenly saw the children, saw how American people live. You need to understand that for Soviet post-war generation, America played a very important role, not just because of these films, and because of jazz music, and these films, because of these attractive images, but also because the United States were allies of the Soviet Union. And until the end of 1945, officially, Soviet propaganda presented the United States, the largest capitalist country, as a main ally and friend of Soviet Union. And this is a paradox that uh, Soviets fell in love with Americans, not just because of this fact, but also because the majority of products they have eaten, so-called Taroy Front, Taroy Front, second part, came from the United States. Probably you know that 80% of all ammunition and food consumed by Soviet troops, by the Soviet army, came from the United States through land lease uh, agreements. Of course, now Putin and uh, Russia try to get about this, but uh, people of uh, the first post-war generation, my parents, uh, recall this and remember how they uh, consume all the egg powder, condensed sweetened milk. So for children like Balkhavikinov, who was a kid during this period of time, or um, veterans of World War II, like Robert Ivanov in uh, Moscow, who was a soldier of the Soviet Army, this relation to the United States was not just a metaphor, it was not just an image from screen. It was real help, it was product. It was food, it was clothes. So it's, uh, it forgot how much Soviets um, remember. You, you talk about your project, about memory, and this uh, idea of American studies started or began like a memory of good allies, of good friends, who suddenly became enemies in the Cold War. So you need to understand this paradox, that major founders of uh, 
American studies in Soviet Union were representative of this generation, which was influenced by these images from Soviet silver screen, from American films, uh, and by this second product, uh, product food from the United States. And I give you these names, Arbatov, uh, founder of uh, the Eastern United States and Canada, um, Bolchavignov, who was an official leader of uh, American, American Center in civil history. In Ukraine, I can give you two names of people who were influenced by these um, um, American products. Arnold Shlipakov from Institute of History and his friend Leonid Leshenko from Kiev. And another uh, classmate from uh, Kiev uh, State University um, uh, of uh, Arnold Shlipakov and Leonid Leshenko was um, uh, Semen Apatov, a Jewish guy from Odessa who also fell in love with um, uh, American images. So we have entire generation of people who grew up under these uh, American influences. Plus, the second influence which started this interest in the United States came from Khrushchev's thought, from Khrushchev's article, when in 56-57, Soviet Union became suddenly open to Western, not completely, but partially became open to Western influence. Suddenly, Canadian and uh, American tourists came to Moscow, and I found actually uh, recently very interesting documents in SBO KGB archive about how Soviet KGB tried to prepare a special delegation from Kiev to this Moscow Youth Festival in 1957. So 80%, I can 80% of all Ukraine delegates were actually KGB agents who tried to communicate with American uh, students who came to Moscow. And it's interesting uh, to read their reports, how they fell in love with <laughs> these uh, strange guys. So this second influence, uh, influence of Khrushchev's um, uh, reform, Khrushchev's uh transformed entire cultural landscape of the Soviet Union, when suddenly, starting with 1959, Soviets had a opportunity only to watch trophy stolen films from German American films, but real American films uh, which were released in the United States and according to a new agreement between the United States and Soviet Union in 1958, these films which Soviet audience as early as 1959, War and Peace, all about the Magnificent Seven, and I can continue on and on. Can you imagine suddenly Soviet people, especially those who lived in big cities, in Nipotovsk, in Lviv, in uh, Moscow, in Leningrad, watched almost every day American films in color, uh, dubbed in good Russian, not in Ukraine, unfortunately. But these two influences produce this immense interest in America. Another very important aspect, Khrushchev went to visit the United States tonight, and he needed expertise from Soviet specials about America. 
And suddenly, uh, research by young specialists such as Nikolai Bolkhavikin and Arnold Slipakov became necessity for Soviet advisors to be sure who made this visit, who sort of made visit to the United States and to America. So all this led to the beginning of a new field of knowledge, which was known in Soviet Union as Americanism. And probably you know that um, uh, during the Cold War, uh, which started in uh, 45, 46, United States and Soviet Union developed so-called the area studies, uh, special confrontational subjects which help to justify competition between former allies. Uh, so in the United States, we had uh, Russistica, Sensitologia, Sensitology, uh, Russian studies, and Ukrainian studies. But in those days, Ukrainian studies were trade in so-called Russian Soviet studies. And Soviet Union, many years later, uh, they had their own area studies called American studies, Americanistica. And the first center was created in the uh, Institute of um, History in Moscow, later Institute of World History, Sistic uh, History. It was uh, Department of History of the United States and Canada, which was created in 1953. And KGB uh, officer, then uh, representative KGB professor of history, and Georgi Sebastian became the first leader of this center. And later on in 67, uh, KGB again uh, promoted the uh, creation of new institute, and uh, Georgi Arbatov became director of this institute, known after 1975 as Institute Society Canada, Institute of the United States. And so this is, um, uh, this is a story which I knew when I was a student of Bolchavikna. And um, as a kid, I uh, loved uh, everything which came from America. And it was, it, was, it was not something strange. Millions and millions of Soviet children fell in love with America in the 70s because of another attempt to open the Soviet Union to foreign influence, which was called Taipan or relaxation of international tensions between the United States and Soviet Union in the 70s. When Brezhnev met Nixon, when Soviet leader and American leader shook hands, exchanged cars, cigarettes, drinks, became friends, um, kissed each other, and even sent the lads, American and uh, Soviet boys, into space, Apollo Soyuz. So it was... Uh, fabulous time and so we had uh, American films like McKenna's Gold, uh, uh, various uh, American um, comedies. It's mad, mad, mad. Well, so we had release of bootleg, but still Soviet records with American film in the seventies. Melodia. Uh, released not only Beatles, but in Rolling Stones, British rock music, but also American music, films for the revival and the other bands and Sun Doors. And suddenly millions and millions of his kids fell in love with American sound, with myself. So 
that was major reason why I began study of English as a language of my love, not just of my choice. So Beatles, Rolling Stones, Doors, uh, and I can continue on and on. And what happened, it was very interesting uh, influence for my generation. We used to listen to the first records which came from the West on radio. And uh, KGB tried to jam, uh, was for America, BBC, a Russian version. What we did, we listened to English version. So it was very good uh, for us. Exercise, it is the language spoken. Uh, Plus, unusual for us, we were, of course, Soviet patriots. We were not anti Soviet, many We loved our country. Even if we love Shevchenko, but it's because we thought that Shevchenko is our um, uh, Ukrainian classic, but predecessor of Soviet Ukrainian literature, you remember. Uh, and um, we memorized Shevchenko. And by the way, for my generation, Shevchenko played the same role as John Lennon and uh, uh, Bob Dylan, probably for American and British youth. So uh, this was a different case, but still, uh, I need to explain that we were affected. But what happened with us, when we listened to the radio station, we suddenly realized that uh, our favorite music, for example, Credence, or have I listened to, uh, in those days, Doors, uh, songs, was interrupt, uh, interrupted uh, during the broadcast. And uh, American journalists uh, presented, for example, Sajinitsyn book, or case of Zuba, or Plush case, and discrimination of uh, Ukrainian intellectuals in Kiev, sending them to mental institutions in Dnipropetrovsk, by the way, in this sent to Dnipropetrovsk uh, brain psychiatric um, clinic. So can you imagine our reaction? We loved our economy. Suddenly we listened to these realities of life. And many of us, me myself, began asking questions. Probably uh, not everything was so beautiful on our social reality. And for us, listening to West America and BBC world, world um, uh, broadcasting was a kind of civic education when we not only listen to our Beatles, Rolling Stones, or Pink Floyd records, but also to this information about Solzhenitsyn, about Plush pamphlets, uh, about internationalization, orosification. So I still remember I had uh, these questions which I asked my mom because I couldn't understand what uh, happened. So for us and for myself, it was very interesting educational uh, practice. So it's one uh, influence which pushed me in direction of American history. Another um, reason was, as you mentioned, American literature. Mm -hmm. um, American literature was part of obligatory reading program for any Soviet school. So children in Soviet schools everywhere, in Soviet Ukraine, in Soviet Bashkiria, in Soviet Kazakhstan, in Soviet Moscow, had to read Mark Twain novels and stories. Um, James Primer Cooper, Indian novels, Natty Bumpo, Chin Hajruk, um, uh, Fate Snake, and so on. 
uh, or mind read, Thomas mind read novels, or uh, Robert uh, Louis Stevenson romantic stories about pirates, or Sabatini novels about pirates of Caribbean. It's American. Uh, for example, a famous um, pirate of uh, English-speaking world was Captain Morgan. And I read about Captain Morgan in Captain Blood stories by Sabatini in Russian. <laughs> so my first love about American pirates, about American Indians, about colonial period of the United States came not from the films, not from a rock and roll, but from James Fremer Cooper, from Sabatini novels. All this English-speaking you know, literature, which was classical literature for everyone in the Soviet Union. So it was very important um, influence for me. That's how I decided to study this. And another influence came from uh, uh, my fascination with Cossack literature about Ukraine. Um, you need to understand that if you live in Cherkasy region um, and reach Shevchenko, uh, you fell in love with uh, not only Shevchenko novels, but also those who, who popularized stories about uh, history. Sklerenko, for example, novels. Uh, and novels. And all of this was available in very good Ukrainian, so my generation was influenced by these uh, stories. Or, for example, Mech Areya, um, a novel about, you know, great um, Hatila, uh, leader of Ukrainian tribe. It's Hatila, who is a In Ukrainian literature, um, uh, we had this uh, fabulous uh, novel about sword of um, Array, Array sword, uh, which presented this fantasy about early. Uh, medieval history of Ukrainian tribes, which influenced in the Roman Empire. So can you imagine all this influenced us? And uh, we developed this very strange Ukrainian patriotism, which was based on uh, Shevchenko, um, uh, from, but also on Sverenko, Smotritsky uh, novels uh, about great Volodymyr, uh, uh, which was Prince, not just Ivan Rus, but he were Ukrainians. Plus, because uh, of my connection to black market, and I went to black market to check my tapes, music tapes. I was familiar with um, the circulation of uh, Rushevsky, Mikhail Rushevsky books on uh, black market. And I read the uh, story of Kaina Rusi uh, through my friends. Uh, so it was very interesting period when in the 70s, before coming to Nikopitovsk University in 76, I was already influenced by American literature, American music, and Kozak cult, Chepchenka cult. Uh, and all this uh, pushed me in direction to compare uh, these two frontier borderland societies in colonial British America and in Ukraine, because to some extent, uh, I realized uh, in '76 when I, I entered Nebraska University that both steppes Ukraine, southern Ukraine, and um, uh, uh, eastern part of the United States in the 17th, 18th century just uh, undergone, underwent this very interesting uh, influence of colonization with different cultures. Um, 
collided and created this very rich, very attractive, very romantic story of you know settling. Uh, for example, uh, American indigenous people, Indian Indian tribes, um, communicate with Dutch, German, um, English um, culture. Uh, Scottish culture, Welsh culture. The same happened in Ukraine. We had influence of uh, uh, Ukrainian settlers, peasants. We have Tatars. We have Poles. We have a Russian peasant. We have German settlers. Moreover, I found that one group, Mennonites, had the same traditions of colonization settling in both Neue Amsterdam, Neue Netherlands, New York, and in my Dnipropetrovsk region. Mennonites settled there, so I could combine it. So it was fascinating for me, but uh, when I entered university, I realized that um, uh, in Russian-speaking Dnipropetrovsk, is not very uh, good. <laughs> <laughs> Concentrate on Ukrainian causes. Although uh, my older colleagues, uh, for example, Sergei Poti from now he in Harvard, he uh, uh, came from nation from my school, uh, developed this idea of causal history and his dissertation, his diploma, Rabot, and then Abrata, and then um, the station was um, about causal. So in Nibirovs. Uh, I encountered very interesting influence which came uh, from uh, Ukrainian, Russian-speaking Americanist. His name was Kalashnikov. Uh, he was a young professor of Western American history in Nipropetrovsk, um, uh, who studied American Indians from colonial British. I can imagine. So it's my third. On the other hand, we had very interesting personality. One of the brightest minds of Ukrainian historiography, whose name was Mikola Kowalski, who developed special school uh, of historiography. He taught about causes, how could you could study during causes and uh, analyze these documents. He uh, had special seminars on sources of his of causes. And my generation, not just all the people like uh, but my younger generation, went to uh, Kowalski seminars, and then we fell in love uh, with his approaches. And that's how I developed my first diploma report, my um, MA thesis, uh, we speak in it. And it was about historiography and historical sources of Nathaniel Bacon Rebellion in colonial Virginia mm -hmm. in 1676. Entire Methodology came from Kowalski. <laughs> so I used his methods. I used Kozak's ideas, but implemented to colonial Virginia to revolt of local settlers in 17th century. So, interestingly enough, I used Kozak methodology, which later on influenced, uh, or earlier on influenced, uh, he made uh, it before him and implement them for my own research. So that's how I developed this uh, idea of colonial business narrative. 
why colonial period? Because I hated modern or current history because of ideology. I understood it very well that if I select, uh, you know, recent period, uh, period of Nixon or Reagan, I would be influenced by ideological limitation. That's why I prefer this very remote 17th, 18th century. That's how I decided to write my new dissertation, and I went to Kiev. And went Arnold Shlipakov, and I was disappointed. Mm-hmm. Arnold Shlipakov rejected my project and asked me to write something about 20th century working class history of the United States. Mm-hmm. Can you imagine? I gave him ideas of 17th, 18th century colonization. And uh, instead of this, um, Arnold Shlipakov uh, offered me a very ideological approach. And I realized that the majority of um, Soviet historians in Kiev were very, very uh, conformist, mm-hmm. very pro-communist. Mm-hmm. And I already was spoiled with West America, with my rock and roll, and plus I had a very long experience working as DJ, this joke, <laughs> in Cherkaska region, in Zinyarodka, uh, in Avatutina. Actually, in Cherkaska, I had a gig one uh, month. In Dnipropetrovsk. Uh, so I uh, was very skeptical about this official ideology. I was not an anti-Soviet. Anti-Soviet developed, the Soviet Union were developed after Chernobyl experience. But before this, I was very confused myself, but I was shocked that Arnold Shipakov and his colleagues from he were very communist, very anti-American. And in those days, uh, we had internship um, in Moscow, uh, paid by our university in Dnipropetrovsk. And I spent two months in um, historical museum in Moscow. I worked uh, in section of cartography with maps in Latin, Dutch, and German languages. Um, as you realize, I already was interested in colonial British America, it's early modern period, that's why I learned Latin and Dutch, because I was interested in colonial Dutch history in America, because the first colony in today's New York was Dutch colony, Neue Amsterdam, the new Amsterdam. And can you imagine in 78 and 79, I spent months working with these maps. It's from colonial, from uh, Imperial Russian collection, probably Romanov's collection. Uh, it's unique maps. I worked with maps of 17th, 18th century. And um, working with these maps, I uh, met some readers in historical library uh, in Moscow who were surprised that this provincial young kid with long hair, with Led Zeppelin <laughs> t-shirt, with John Lennon um, glasses, was crazy about colonial Amsterdam, New Amsterdam, colonial um, Netherlands um, of 17th century America. And they told me, Sergei, uh, you know what? We have another crazy guy in Moscow. His name is Bolchevik, <laughs> who has problems with KGB. 
from 79, uh, KGB was, uh, KGB stopped, uh, travels for Khmer because of his mm-hmm. anti-Soviet position. And they connected me to Belkhavitnev. And I met this guy who was actually a pioneer in history of Russian-American relations, who was to some extent advisor of Khrushchev, because Abjubey actually used Yan Belkhavitnev for search to prepare Khrushchev and his advisors to visit the United States in 59, because Soviets had no clue about the first connections between the Russian Empire and the United States in 1807, 1809, about the first American consulate in computers in 1809. And Jan, but he knew about this. And he became, you know, celebrity in Soviet Union. He was untouchable because he was loved by the uh, committee of Communist Party. He advised uh, both Khrushchev and Brigid. He visited uh, United States on a regular basis after 68. But because of his too close relations with American historians, and probably because he talked too much, KGB stopped him. <laughs> That's why he was became Gibbsboy. As can you imagine this year, I met him, and I was influenced by his ideas, by his content, by his uh, his book. I read about him because in terms of human American studies, which I published before. So with Americana. And uh, I fell in love with him, actually. Um, I, I lost my father many years before, and some of the replaced me this figure. Um, then I realized that Bolkhavina was an enthusiast of Russian nationalist Solzhenitsyn. And, you know, if you are a real nationalist, if you love his own country, you respect nationalism of other uh, nations. So suddenly I realized that Bohemia uh, had tremendous respect for so-called Bandera. I had no clue about this. Sort of and I realized that he had a good friend, an American historian called Tieto, whose name is um, not Tieto, it's um, I forgot this uh, university on Western Coast, uh, not Coast of Seattle, but uh, his name is Basil Matrician. <laughs> Basil Matrician was one of those young Banderovites who was arrested by Polish, by the Germans, by Soviets, and eventually he managed to flee. Uh, and uh, he managed to go to the United States. Uh, entered the American army in Korea, and then he got this American citizenship. But he he was always, he was a nutrition who wrote wonderful books about Russian empire, about Russian colonization. A nutrition, um, uh, ah, State Oregon uh, University, this uh, school. And he actually sent me um, memoirs about Bokhmin, which I used in my research as well. Uh, so the nutrition influenced Bohemian spent entire semester in State Oregon in 1977. Can you imagine Russian nationalists who loves Luzhenitsyn <laughs> and Ukrainian <laughs> <laughs> nationalists became close friends. And for me, it was 
revelation that was. So from this time on, I decided, no, no way. I would never communicate with these even, you know, communists who were very cautious mm-hmm. of, of any criticism of Soviet system. And I was influenced by Bohemian. From this time on, I uh, decided that I will write uh, my new research under his influence. And I did this. Um, after finishing my uh, school, after graduating uh, from the West in 1981, uh, I uh, went to uh, school in Dnipropetrovsk. Um, then, uh, because my mom was very sick, I moved to Circassia region, uh, to my hometown, Vatuzna. And uh, I had a uh, young, beautiful wife and uh, boy, son. I need money, that's why I spent more probably time working in uh, disco clubs, uh, making more money for my family budget than uh, teaching in school. But the same, I had free time and free money to go to Moscow, uh, work in archives and um, library, and uh, I wrote as DJ and as a high school teacher a dissertation called um, Social and Cultural History of Colonial New York. Mm-hmm. From uh, Netherlands, uh, New Netherlands, since uh, 1821 until uh, 17th So it's only 17th century. So, and Bohemian was my mentor. So I defended this dissertation. I uh, went back to Ukraine after defense. Uh, I began uh, teaching as instructor. Uh, at the at the Nipidos University, and a young, ambitious historian who was a chair of the Department of World History, Sergei Mikolaevich Potkin, mm-hmm. invited me to his department. Mm-hmm. So that's how he saved my life. <laughs> I became my professor, uh, assistant, the associate professor in his department. And um, that's how I uh, became a professor of Nipitov's University under leadership of Sergei Putin. Mm-hmm. Then suddenly, in, in 1986, um, we had this Chernobyl tragedy, and um, I was drafted into the army. Um, in, um, on May 2nd, 1986, so you know that um, in Soviet Union we had such practice known as Vienna Cathedral. It's close to ROTC system in American schools. I know that Indiana University has ROTC classes. Our both state, my Johns Hopkins, where I uh, was very soon at this ROTC. Uh, Columbia, every, every school has uh, ROTC classes. So unfortunately, I had this um, Cathedral as well, so I got my uh, rank of lieutenant on, in reserve. Mm-hmm. But when uh, um, Chernobyl happened, uh, uh, our local authorities uh, drafted all young people like myself, with actually with uh, college degrees, to help 
um, uh, to protect the zone or to stop the attack. So I was lucky enough uh, that I was not uh, a builder or chemist or uh, medical. You know, I had no medical specialty. I had this uh, motostrelok uh, specialty. So um, for three months, uh, uh, I and my platoon um, had this assignment to protect zone from thieves. Uh, so they put us in special camp, uh, three uh, kilometers from from reactor. They did not provide us with any protection. So if you if you've seen uh, HBO. Uh, uh, mini-series, Chernobyl, it's good, but it's not perfect. Uh, we had no such protection like they've shown in this. We had no... Um, we had nothing. We had only blackboards with description of what we supposed to have. Uh, and we had no vodka. It's, it's a lie. We no vodka. We had a lot of red wine, but mm-hmm. we pay for it wine with our own cash. And I know that after these three months, our major uh, guy who was in charge of um, our regiment told us that we are not supposed to have children. And um, that's why we were not so fortunate. And the uh, majority of us actually developed this, I call this anti-Soviet syndrome. Mm-hmm. And very anti Soviet. I hate everything because I realized that the Soviet system was based on lies, on, uh, you know, on this bureaucratic centralized machine which didn't care about us. Can you imagine? They sent us people with grades, people with college degrees. For what? For being exposed to this radiation, for doing, you know, and again, uh, as Platy uh, uh, wrote in his uh, recent book about Chernobyl, Soviets concentrated more regular troops than us reservists in uh, Chernobyl zone. They Ukraine has now in Donetsk or Lugansk area. So it was a crime committed by Soviet regime by Gorbachev. I blame Gorbachev personally. And that's why I criticize Chernobyl uh, ministerials for not emphasizing um, guilt mm-hmm. of Soviet leadership, especially Gorbachev passing mm-hmm. for Chernobyl. But anyway, I saw this. I just uh, mentioned my biography and how I became American and how I decided to write this mm-hmm. book. And I finished. It was, uh, it's, uh, it was my explanation. When I told uh, that they want to write about this book, American influence and Soviet people, uh, how Americanists were influenced by all these films, music, um, literature. He told me, yeah, you need to divide your project in two parts. One will be about your own experience, about your rock and roll, about your DJ experience, about uh, this nationalism uh, and rock and roll. Because I told him a funny story, probably you know this, and if you read uh, my uh, book on the city, you can uh, recall this story. It's about how Ukrainian young characters transformed famous song Venus by Shopping Blue into 
concern about Zaporizhsky Kozaki. Zaporizhsky Kozaki, вони скоро прийдуть, вони скоро вб'ють, вони москалі поб'ють, вони вякові і так далі, і так далі. And this song was a cover of Shopping Blue Hit in 71-72, it became hit everywhere. In Dnipro, region, region, in Cherkaska area, actually all Cherkaska band uh, performed this Shopping Blue song about the political Even KGB supported this because KGB loved Ukrainian text, not English, not American. <laughs> uh, they didn't realize it's very anti-Russian, anti-Polish, anti, anti-Tatar. You know, it's, it's very Cossack uh, sort. And um, uh, so Gorbachev knew about this story, and I, and I uh, played this song for him, and he told him, three, you need to finish your book about this. Uh, this, this kind of thing. And then concentrate on Americanists and American influences. And then I went to the United States. It was my first trip to the United States in 1982. And I visited, among many other schools, Georgetown. And my first friend, a very good friend of Ukraine, was Richard Stites. Unfortunately, late And Richard Stites, I call him American academic hippie because he was hippie. <laughs> you always had this, uh, you know, uh, having to smoke uh, two or three uh, cigarettes in his ears, all these uh, earrings, and he told me, and we always, you know, found common uh, ground. And uh, he introduced me to another uh, very distinguished senator, Marcus Legator, who was historian of American pirates, and whom I met in Tokhavina um, uh, uh, House in 1955 who loved the uh, American and British punks. And so, so suddenly through all this connection, I became friends with um, Richard Stite. And Richard Stite became influential in uh, shaping my project about Nikopetrovsky. <laughs> and you know, I was crazy about uh, various theoretical approaches. I was... Uh, Influenced by this British um, culture, cultural study school uh, about cultural uh, consumption and identity, and uh, I offered to um, uh, Richard Stites in those days and Bohin this very academic, for example, uh, cultural consumption and identity and shaping. Uh, future of Ukrainian, Jewish, Russian nationalism in close city of Soviet Ukraine. Can you imagine this stuff? And uh, Richard Stein said was very direct. <laughs> so, hey, cut this shit. <laughs> you can cut this. Cut this theoretical shit. It's about rock and roll. Yeah. It's about close city. And close city was city producing rocket city. You know, uh, bro, you know that... Um, uh, we called uh, in Soviet uh, times, uh, Dnipro says Dnipro, uh, city of rockets, uh, but never rocket city. Uh, it's very uh, rock and roll term. <laughs> and um, Richard says, told me, hey, I give you my time. Rock and roll and the rocket city. <laughs> and no theoretical bullshit. <laughs> Who cares about the field? 
everybody cares about your story. How people live, listen, read books, how they became so-called nationalists, Zionists. So that's how two great friends and mentors of mine, Nikolai Nikolaevich and Richard Stites, influenced me in this Richard Stites also told Sergei, you know what you need to do? Remove all your stuff about Americanists, mm-hmm. because you are American, mm-hmm. and put this in different book. And that's how I decided to write this book called Soviet American. But Soviet American is not my, my type. Mm-hmm. And another Another friend of mine, also crazy guy like mine, also from Soviet space, whose name is Andrei Znaminsky, who was expert in American Indian history in Soviet Union, fled from Soviet Union. He had this very bad experience KGB. I had experience KGB because of my music. Andrei had bad experience KGB because of his love of American Indian culture. Well, you know that in the 70s and 80s, millions of Soviet kids tried to imitate the life of indigenous people from Northern America. They were crazy about Goyko Mitich films, Vinitu films, they read Fanny uh, Cooper and uh, Manlit, and they reproduced this style of life, including Andrei Znaminsky. Many of them became historians like Andrei Znaminsky or my Mm, uh, first member Kalashnikov, and Znaminsky eventually fled to the United States, changed his identity, became Soviet historian or Russian historian, and now he teaches Russian history in the uh, University of Memphis. So when Andrei learned about my idea to write this book, he told me, no, Sergei, I give you my type. It's Sovietska, Radianska, Americana. By American, American, it's complex of cultural practices. It's not just about how Soviet scholars studied or wrote history or political science or culture or economy of America, but also how they were influenced by American cultural forms, how they transformed these forms in the perception of America, how they invented America, how they um, shaped um, their own identity in their academic studies. So it's not, otherwise it would be historiography, very boring, nobody would read your book. So he persuaded me that's how three people, three persons, uh, Bohvinov, Stites, and uh, Znaminsky influence. And another influence came from another friend of mine who in those years was an uh, uh, American professor at Temple University, Vladislav Zubok. Vladislav Zubok is a very interesting personality because he's uh, a grandson of founding father of American studies in uh, Soviet Union. His grandfather was Ukrainian American Jew who fled from pogroms of the Russian Revolution to Philadelphia, became American communist, and became crazy enough to believe Stalin, mm-hmm. to help Stalin to build this new paradise mm-hmm. in Soviet Union. 
he fled from Philadelphia to uh, and being American, being graduate student of University of Pennsylvania. Can you imagine? So he was very talented historian. He fled, he moved to Soviet Russia, and of course, Stalin never allowed him to come back to the United States. And this guy was very thick English American, actually, accent, who never spoke fluently Russian. Because his, uh, you know, his youth uh, was spent in mm-hmm. Philadelphia. This guy, uh, this Jewish uh, communist from the United States, began reading books about um, American communist movement, American labor movement, uh, American uh, international relations. And he became um, uh, the first, actually, founding father of American studies in Mikinsky because all those who became official leaders, Arbatov, Sevastyanov, um, uh, Belhevikinov, Shlipakov, took his classes. And another friend of his was also a very unique uh, pioneer, founding father of Russian studies, was a white officer, Russian naval officer who hated Bolsheviks, who took part, part in civil war on wrong side, on white side of uh, this conflict, who was wounded, who was arrested by NKVD, NKVD who was actually uh, influenced by NKVD and became NKVD. That's an unfortunate. Many of, uh, you know, many stories like this happened with Svitaeva husband. It was a typical situation. But he was a real Russian Orthodox Christian patriot who hated Soviet Union, who became communist, but uh, he was always a patriot. So these two guys became friends. Uh, this Jewish guy from Philadelphia, Lev Zubak, and this Russian gay guy whose name was Alexei Yefimov. Um, uh, and they became two professors of Gimor, Moscow uh, Institute of International Relations, uh, which was organized by the Soviet government uh, for the for the first school of American, actually, uh, American specialists. And the first professors who were teaching in this school after World War II were these two unusual guys, Lev Israeli Zubov, and Yefimov. And who were the students of these guys? Nikolai Balkhavinov, my mentor, and uh, Grigory Arpadov, who created uh, Institute of the United States in fact. That's why, for me, the name of Zubov was a legend. Moreover, Zubok, Vlad Zubok's father, son of Lev Zubok, who hated history, who hated humanities, because in the Soviet Union, uh, history was related to ideology. And uh, uh, son of um, Lev Zubok became a physicist and sound engineer, who was hired by Ostantina, by uh, Soviet television center. And he became a sound engineer of music programs, including my favorite programs about rock and roll. 
when in 1972-74, this guy, Zubok Young, was a sound engineer of fabulous programs, which shaped entire generation of broken old men like myself. For example, Magnificent Lantern of 74. What they did, they covered Beatles, Rolling Stones, Doors, Creedence songs, or Jesus Christ Superstar arias with Russian lyrics. And Zubok, his name was Martin Zubok, was in charge of all this. Can you imagine? Martin Zubok produced a song, Vladislav Zubok, was influenced by all these American video clips, Disney cartoon films, Beatles, Rolling script, Jesus Superstar, Deep Purple, Led Zeppelin, again, putting on and on music. And this guy, Vlad Zubok, also influenced my, because for me, he was a unique case of two major influences symbolic for Soviet culture. One, in the academic world was Lev Zubok, his grandfather, and another was Martin Zubok, who influenced rock and roll consumption of millions and millions of Soviet kids like myself in the Senate. So Zubok actually uh, gave me a lot of uh, information. I interviewed him and included his story in both books. Book about Bolchavitna mm-hmm. and book Soviet American. Why two books? Now I can open the secret. <laughs> I planned a huge book which I offered to, I will not give you a name, to very prestigious publishing house. But my book, if you look through especially the first book about Nikolai Bolchavitnov, had personal criticism mm-hmm. of Putin and his war in Ukraine. Mm-hmm. I blame the Russian Federation in attacking Ukraine. And uh, people who read my manuscript in this college house asked me to remove all criticism because it was irrelevant to my material. And I said no. Mm-hmm. And they said no to my publication. What I did, I separated these two, as usual, a huge um, manuscript in two parts. And uh, sent them in small publishing houses. One was Lexman Books. Mm-hmm. And moreover, they approached me. They asked me to publish mm-hmm. with them. And one Taurus, they also asked me to publish mm-hmm. them. That's how I divided this uh, project in two. But the most essential is this one, so the Americana. Because Nikolai Balkhavina is only about one influence, one man, one story. Uh, Soviet American is more Russian and Ukrainian Americans. Well, what well, one conversation, but uh, <laughs> I tried to introduce um, uh, and answer yeah. your right. question. 
Yeah, well, uh, that's what I noticed that your book uh, offers a few uh, a few narratives. One is about the establishment of the Soviet-American relations, and another one, which is very interesting and very revealing, about this collaboration between uh, Ukrainian Americanists and um, uh, Russian Americanists. And I was very much interested in how that dynamic was developing. And uh, you offer a couple of. Uh, uh, not a couple, a number of uh, stories that show how that uh, um, cooperation was taking place under the Soviet Union. But before we started uh, recording our interview, you also mentioned that you're working on a new project right now at the moment. And right now you're in Ukraine and you're working with some additional archival materials. Could you uh, tell us a little bit about your upcoming project? Uh, to some extent, this new project is sequel to Soviet Americana and the Rock and Roll City, because in Soviet Americana, I wrote about KGB influences on Soviet Americans. For example, uh, many of them were either uh, KGB officers, like Sevastianov uh, and uh, Sevastov in Moscow, or collaborated very, or very close to KGB, like Shlipakov, for example. And that's why I went to this archive, KGB's SBU archive in Kiev, to find out uh, some additional material. But what I found was a shock for me. Uh, I discovered variety of various operations of KGB against so-called uh, American Canadians, uh, Ukrainian Canadians. Ukrainian Americans. Um, and uh, the more I read, I realized that the major target of KGB um, was not just three major enemies like in Kichinka, KGB uh, had uh, in the 60s and 50s uh, told Ukrainian nationalists, uh, Jewish nationalists, and sectarians. No. The most important were, of course, Ukrainian and Jewish nationalists. And their collaboration, their alliances. Uh, I discovered plenty of documents about KGB targeting tourists from Canada and the United States, Ukraine by what? And then I discovered how KGB tried to influence Ukrainian immigration in both Canada and in the uh, United States. For example, I've already told Lemko, so use talk to Varistvo, More than 50% of all Canadian communists came from Ukraine, and they became target of KGB campaigns, so called operations. Moreover, almost every month, KGB um, called uh, Canadian communists to visit um, Soviet embassy in Ottawa or Soviet embassy in uh, uh, Washington if, uh, if it was led to Ukrainian Americans. And they tried to influence that. Uh, plus, um, KGB tried to influence field of Ukrainian status. It's interesting how um, KGB tries to establish control and monitor the first centers of Ukrainian studies, first in Harvard, 
So they collected all information, what the Tsarkovs are. They tried to uh, discredit these leaders of these uh, centers, like Tsark and uh, Harvard, or Columbia Center, or Edmund Center, to uh, show them as Bandera whites, as collaborators uh, of Nazi collaborators, or you know, with CIA spies. So all this material uh, pushed me in the direction of this new project, uh, which was called uh, Ukraine KGB versus Capitalist America. Mm-hmm. It's about uh, KGB operations against uh, Ukrainian uh, ideas, Ukrainian practices, Ukrainian identity in Canada and United States. Uh, and in Soviet America. So uh, I will discuss how KGB targeted Canadian and American Ukrainians, how they targeted those Ukrainian patriots to try to develop connection with these people. Uh, they targeted those um, Ukrainian dissidents, uh, who became dissidents, Ukrainian intellectuals, who tried to develop now, uh, this new patriotic initiative actually based on uh, traditional Marxist discourse, by the way. They were very left. They were not uh, bourgeois nationalists, not at all. And at the same time, uh, how Soviet uh, KGB targeted young people, because young people became the most important element of uh, both Ukrainian nationalist movement and so-called Zionist movement. Uh, Jewish nationalist movement, and plus consumption of Western, especially American cultural products, led to the rise of different movements which became alternative in KGB mind to official commissomal structures, like um, hippie movement. I never expected the, uh, the KGB had special operations against uh, hippies. For example, in 1972, KGB arrested 172 hippies in Kiev. I always thought that hippie existed in Baltic states and Lviv, but not in Kiev. The more I read these documents, uh, as blue documents, I realized that hippie movement influence Lutz, Dnipropetrovsk, <laughs> Uh, Cherkasy, Odessa, Lviv, but Kyiv was a major uh, center. So more than according to uh, official, uh, not oral history documents, but official KGB, more than 2,000 people belong and were arrested. He had records of these people. More than 2,000 people were arrested in Soviet Ukraine. It started in 68. And actually, it was active even in the 80s. In 87, 89, police still monitored this so-called Sistema people, people of this. Uh, and the second was, of course, a punk movement of 82, 83, 85, uh, which was suppressed in many cities, especially in the Kropitovsk. And I found this unique documents about these... Um, uh, um, KGB operations against Soviet Jews 
Moreover, so it was discovered that uh, young people experiment with sex. Uh, they discovered so-called sex sects of uh, various uh, origins. As I realized, they were influenced by Krishna um, and East Asian religious tradition, but mysticism. But each of you sometimes can understand this. They arrested these people, discovered uh, various uh, sexual uh, uh, practices, and they blamed these people in uh, various, you know, anti-social crimes. Many of these scholars students were arrested. Uh, at least 300 people were into this one. So, uh, the more I read these people, I, uh, the more I read these documents, I realized that I need to concentrate on these documents and um, uh, finish my book. And the last scene. I didn't plan to do this, but uh, the more I read uh, documents from funds of counterintelligence of KGB, the more I uh, found facts about Industrial espionage. Mm -hmm. When uh, Ukrainian KGB, using of course orders from Moscow, tried to collect industrial technological information, financial documents, information from United States and Canada, uh, using their agents in both countries, but also using so-called exhibitions, which were organized by United States and Canada in Soviet Ukraine. For example. From 61 um, until 89, 1961 until 1989, the United States of America organized 16 industrial exhibitions. Um, uh, various other technological projects, which were just stolen by um, Soviet KGB. Almost every month, Soviet KGB reported several committees, starting with Shellis and Sherbetsky, about new secrets about submarines, about rockets, about nuclear reactors, about uh, chemistry, and so on, so on, so on, about cybersecurity about financial institutions when banking system. So uh, the more I read these documents, I realized that as early as late 60s, Soviet KGB had to develop not only system of industrial espionage, it exists everywhere, but also system of imitating of Western financial institutions, like for example, financial banks, for using money in the West for bribing politicians, uh, paying money to local KGB agents, so on. That's how this famous or infamous KGB funds became available for bribes as late as 60s. By the way, I found uh, information how Soviets tried to uh, bribe uh, Vice President Humphrey uh, campaign in 68 because they were afraid of Richard Nixon winning the election. And again, what kind of funds? So it's used KGB financial institutions, which imitated American forms, which used 
Western names, American names, but existed on American soil. It's interesting how they use uh, Fortunately for Americans, Humphrey rejected uh, Soviet financial help in those days, not like uh, in Trump uh, times. But um, uh, what happened next? KGB became pioneers in organizing these Soviet secret banks abroad, which were flourishing, especially in late 70s and 80s, which became very important school for financial adventures of post-Soviet period. That's why uh, we shouldn't surprise that the majority of the most successful banks today in post-Soviet space, in both Ukraine, by the way, and in Russia. I don't know about the other Russia, but I suspect it's mm-hmm. true about this as well, were created by KGB people who had this very interesting school uh, from main enemy, because KGB had the main enemy, United States, main adversary, Holodny Vorog in Ukraine. But the Holodny Vorog, uh, this main enemy, main adversary, became not only main opponent, but also main teacher of uh, Soviet KGB people who create in many, uh, in, 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 in some sense, entire infrastructure financial um, practices in post-Soviet space. We shouldn't forget about this. So it looks like... Uh, we'll have another chapter. Uh, it will be a uh, chapter about this industrial espionage and financial institutions. So it looks like uh, you will have a new book quite soon. And uh... Uh, Who knows? Who knows? I, I, I will go to D.C. in July, uh, working in the National Archive there in College Park, Maryland. I will see it. So, well, but anyway, as soon as you have this new book, I hope that we will have another conversation. But at this point, uh, good luck on your new uh, project and on this new publication. And uh, I would like to thank you for this fascinating conversation and for this uh, very profound and fascinating research on the the relations between um, the Soviet Union and the U.S. and um, uh, the United States. And uh, just to emphasize that this book offers uh, a very intriguing story, not about the political uh, relations, but uh, about... uh, how an individual story can be influenced by the political environment and how... Can I interrupt you? I have only one remark. I forgot about this. Recently, I discovered in Slavic and other uh, venues, um, criticizing my book as very anti-Russian approach, uh, you know, blaming uh, KGB for everything. It's not true. It's not just against KGB. Of course, I... uh, Criticize KGB influence, and but they are, are at the same time, I appreciated their support because they, to some extent, protect these people and people like Sivachov enough. But these reviews missed another point of my book about how South Americans contributed to cultural consumption in 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s. Films, music, and television, many. Genre which we uh, accepted for granted, like musicals, sitcom, soap opera, um, miniseries, were brought by Soviet Americans to Soviet leaders, Minister of Culture, and they developed these forms in Soviet television, in Soviet radio. And I have another part of this book. Uh, 
And nobody mentioned this. And plus, another very important issue, it's story of academic shame. Also missed in recent reviews, in Slavic review or Russian review. So that's one point I, I want to mention. Academic changes during Khrushchev, Taitan time, and Gorbachev period, and culture consumption. Mm-hmm. Everything consumption of Soviet people was influenced by Soviet America. Uh, movie films, radio, everything. And this, uh, that's why my book called not History of American Studies, but called Soviet American. Yes, uh, it offers a very complex approach to the history of uh, these relationships. As you mentioned, it's not only about uh, some uh, political development, but it's about personal and academic and cultural. And uh, it goes against this very monolithic, probably, approach to uh, understanding um, the Soviet-American relationships when uh, Soviet is usually substituted by Russian and your book somehow adds a lot of layers to this history. It's not only about Soviet, it's about Soviet-Russian, Soviet-Ukrainian. Moreover, as you mentioned in this interview, Soviet-Ukrainian can be also be nationalist or national while being communist. So it's very complex and complicated. So thank you so much. Yeah, and, 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 yeah, and, the, yeah, and the, the last remark, a uh, major point of my book is about how Ukrainian-Americans also distance themselves from Russian Americans, especially those Americans like Sivachov, who became Russian chauvinists and anti-Semites, like Nikolai Nikolaevich Yakovlev or uh, Sivachov, who despised Ukrainians as Khokhli. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's why Arnold Shlipakov, Lyshenka, and Jewish guy like Apatov tried to distance themselves from these anti-Semitic and Russian imperialists like Sivachov. And this happened in the 70s. That's why they used their own academic niche in Ukrainian-Canadian relations as an attempt to build their own Soviet-Ukrainian academic identity. Mm-hmm. That's it. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Sergei. Today I spoke with Serhizhuk about his book Soviet Americana, The Cultural History of Russian and Ukrainian Americanists, which was published by Tauris. Thank you for listening to the East European Studies podcast in the New Books Network. Thank you.